Good evening and welcome. My name is Julian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here. And I am delighted this evening to welcome Robert Enright and uh, Francois Sullivan again. I don't know if any of you were lucky enough to be here last night for the performance. It was magnificent in, in Walker Court. So I would like to start off, of course, by thanking American Express, who continue to fund our contemporary programming. Um, and I'm always very grateful for them. <clears throat> Francois Sullivan is the recipient of the 2008 Gershon Iskowitz Prize, and we're also very grateful for that relationship with the Iskowitz Foundation. In a career that has spanned six decades, she has worked fluidly between multiple media, gaining early acclaim for her work as a dancer and choreographer, before incorporating painting, sculpture, and photography into her artistic practice. Sullivan was a member of Les Automatistes, a group of Montreal artists who used their work to advocate for artistic and social change during the 1940s and 1950s. I suspect many of you in this audience know that already, but I'd like to make sure. She's a member of the Order of Canada and received the Governor General's Award in the Visual and Media Arts in 2005. Francoise currently, by the way, has an exhibition of her recent work at the Women's Art Resource Centre down on, on Richmond, so please go and see that as well. Robert Enright is a senior contributing editor to Border Crossings magazine and the university research professor of art theory and criticism at the University of Guelph. Professor Enright has written over 40 introductions and catalogued essays for exhibitions and is a regular contributor to the arts section of the Globe and Mail. In 2005, he, was, he also was made a member of the Order of Canada. So Robert and Francoise are going to be in conversation and then at a certain point, we will get and become in conversation with you as well. So, Robert. Thank you very much. Uh, and thank you for inviting me. It's a, um, I can't tell you what an honor it is to talk to, to Francoise again. We did an interview years ago in Border Crossings, and it was my first meeting with her. And uh, she's a charmer, so I'll try and not smile like a goofy child for the whole time and <laughs> see if I can, I, can, I can be serious. You know, uh, and I also saw the performance last night, which was a, a, a remarkable thing to see, because before you'd only sent tapes of the dance. So to see it literally embodied was really something. But last night you mentioned the year 1948, and you said a lot of things happened in 1948, and I want to start talking about, about inspiration by talking about time and, and get you to talk a little bit about 1948 and why it was a significant year. It, it was um, a very rich year when uh, people in, in the uh, group had exhibitions, and for me, I, well, first I was asked to give a, a, a lecture, so I wrote something that I called Danse et l'Espoir, and it was uh, presented uh, publicly on the 16th of uh, February. On the 28th of February, I did the Danse dans la Neige, and then uh, Jean Renaud and I decided to present the uh, choreographies that we had been working on separately, and decided to do one together on a poem by her sister, Therese, which was read last night by Ray Ellen Wood. And uh, uh, we presented this, uh, this program on the 3rd of April. And all the time, we were thinking of uh, an exhibition with the 
a book that would go with it, which turned out to be a manifesto without an exhibition. That was with Hugo It Yes. Well, that didn't have much an effect on Quebec society, did it? <laughs> <laughs> did you know at the time that, that it was going to be as startling a book uh, as it was, a pamphlet as it was? It, we, we thought it could be, and uh, Botra was aware that it could be, but it's always hard when it happens, and it hit him specially. Because he was very, fired from his position. He was fired from his position, and then uh, shortly after his wife left, and uh, he became sick. It, it was devastating for him, and he felt he had no more place in, in Quebec. In talking about the notion of inspiration, you've said before that, that Baudois was himself charismatic. I gather people can be inspirational. They can be a point of departure for encouraging other people to do things. He was especially charismatic. He was, uh, when he would talk, we would be, you know, gripped to his uh, words, every word. Mm -hmm. You were 17 uh, when you met him, weren't you? Yes. I mean, why were you so precocious? What are you doing hanging out with older men at 17, Francoise? I'm shocked. I wasn't whole hanging out with him. I was hanging out with a group of friends of my age. <laughs> Just to get the record straight. But, I mean, you, you were precocious, though. I mean, I know you said that when you were 11, you were choreographing for your friends in the street, and you obviously had the impulse to make art in you. From well, a because I, I... My mother took me to dance lessons, to uh, theater lessons, uh, piano lessons, <laughs> everything. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it became things to do, a game. It, it was fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, I loved uh, showing my friends how to dance. You're still showing your friends how to dance, <laughs> interestingly <laughs> enough. Did, was, you, you've said that, that dance was important to you. Was, was there a hierarchy in your imagination about which of the art forms were more significant? Well, it, it was very difficult. I, I decided to be a painter. I thought this was uh, the height of what one can do in life. <laughs> to be either a painter, a musician, or a poet. Mm. And, uh, I mean, they were the major uh, art forms uh, for centuries, or millenniums, in fact. Mm -hmm. uh, it had always been so. So, uh, but dance was part of my life. My everyday life, I, I um, would go to dance class after school. And then there would be, uh, uh, in the spring, there was always a big uh, dance recital to be part of. In, in Montreal? Yeah. yeah. So that was, and then uh, when the ballet companies would come to Montreal, uh, I'd go to every performance and see it from every angle and uh, often go backstage uh, to enter for free. It was this 
It was the thing to do in those days. So you, you saw Diagonus Valley Roost, right? When you were well, not, they weren't, <coughs> they, he wasn't alive anymore. But, the, but what was left of it and the companies that continued it, yes. Mm-hmm. And it was just one of the most magical events you could imagine because there was the Leon Basque costumes and setting. There were settings by Picasso, by, uh, there was music by Stravinsky, there was uh, choreography by various uh, uh, people, various choreographers, and sometimes even they even bring uh, old choreographies from the 18th centuries. It was a whole history, and the uh, Russians, of course, were fabulous at, at dance. So when you say you were so interested in dance, you, though, have always described yourself as a painter. And when you were choreographing, when you went to New York at a fairly young age as well, were you trying to duplicate in movement what the automatists were doing in, in gestural vocabulary painting? I was thinking of, uh, well, first, I went to New York to free myself from the ballet habits. Those bad habits of being on point. I know, you've got to get rid well, of Well, not only. You come and you sort of, you know, have a manner, a way of, of yeah. uh, moving that is very, very definite. And I had to, I had to work at that. And uh, I had to take some classes because at first I didn't know how to do that. It came the other way. It came so naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, I wanted to free myself, and I wanted to be a choreographer and to find my own language, not to be, to repeat what someone else does, find my own language, and the way to do it was thinking in the automatist uh, uh, way. So you tie into the kind of, the the way in which the body releases its energy then, in a sense. That's what I was doing, and uh, I was, hoping to uh, do works that would be uh, like the, uh, almost the same as the way a painter approaches mm-hmm. painting. Because when in, in Dance and Hope, you, you're very strong. You talk about the old language of dance as being a kind of death. I mean... Yes, well, uh, I was exaggerating a little bit. <laughs> As a young woman would do, writing a manifesto yes. when she's 23. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was there something about the fact that so many of the members, other than Baudois, who was older, that, that you were all so young? I mean, is, is youth the time that one makes the gesture that is more radical than your... Oh, prop- it is in history, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, when, that's when you want to, you know, change the world. And we did. <laughs> we, I mean, we wanted to change the world, and that's why we did the manifesto. I want to go back, because last night, in, you know, three of the pieces were from 1948. You, you go, what, in 46 to New York? I think. Uh, well, let's see. Well, the years for me are like school years. Uh, <laughs> so they're half uh, one year, half another. <laughs> 
Uh, so it's uh, 45, 46, 46, 47. Minor taxation year, right. so I'd rather think about that as being school years, actually. That's <laughs> a better way of thinking about things. <laughs> so you go, down, what, what gave you the courage to, to go to New York? I mean, you're... you're oh, well, it, it was the, uh, also the adventure of living on my own. Uh, the, uh, also a friend, my friend Louise Renault was already there, so that made it a little bit easier to have someone already there that could show me around a bit. There's a fabulous picture in the back of the catalog of the Ray and, and the, of the Automatiste new book in which the two of you look like, are you eating apples? You look like that's, two... Oh, that's with Jean, Jean Renault. But then there's the two of you are kind of, what are your two eaves tempting the world or something? You're, it's a pretty good looking... One of the things that struck me about the Automatiste is that every picture you see of them, were they all hired by central casting to look good or something? <laughs> it's, it's the best looking group of painters. <laughs> I mean, it, what, what? Was there some kind of condition you had to be good looking to be a Member of the group? No, it just happened. <laughs> <laughs> it was a pretty exciting time, I gather, was it? It was. Very. And we, um, we were friends. It wasn't a formal thing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't uh, uh, like a, a school or a, something organized. We were friends, and then other people came into the group, and we befriended them, and we when we'd find a good book, an important book to read, we'd pass it around, we'd show it, look at each other's works, and uh, uh, we'd be very enthusiastic uh, for one, one another. Because you knew Claude Gavreau when you were 11 years old. Pierre. Pierre, that's right, when yeah. you were 11, right? Yeah. He was uh, the friend of my, my best friend's... Uh, brother. He lived uh, just a few doors away from her, and uh, uh, well, we got to know him, and of course he was a charmer in those days, and uh, we, my friend and I both found him very attractive, but that was it, you know, and then we lost sight Well, you were 11. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I know you're precocious, but we don't want to get too far with that. <laughs> You know, one of the other things that, that you said, and this interests me a lot, is that th there was a group of, uh, of other young intellectuals around a priest, and, and, and Pierre Trudeau was part of that. Yes, and, and at the, uh, uh, there were uh, the Jesuit schools, and so the Brebeuf was the more well-to-do, and uh -huh. the Saint-Marie was a bit less, but still the, they were usually the most intelligent in, in the groups who would go there. At the Sainte-Marie, there was a priest who was passionately uh, involved with theater and would ask his students to uh, put up uh, Greek plays or Racine, uh, Corneille, Molière, mm -hmm. and that was very important for the, the students. You also said that, that Baudois would, would criticize the, the works they'd done and that you learned a lot from watching Baudois, how he, how he determined what was a good drawing or painting, what was a bad one. You can obviously learn from that experience that inspiration can also come out of a kind of, almost a pedagogy, almost a way of learning. Is that right? He would um, look at a drawing or a painting and he would say whether that was 
fresh and alive, or if there was a part of it that was just academic, you, you know, you didn't do anything, uh, it, you didn't come from you there. And uh, he, he would judge it. And in that way, we learn to read a work of art. Mm -hmm. it, it's not a given thing. It, it, you have to cultivate that. Mm -hmm. you've, you've said that even your, your dance thoughts were painting thoughts, and I want to get a sense of when you decided that painting was, was going to be your main way of expressing yourself. Well, this is very difficult. Um, I wanted to be a painter, but I sort of was seduced by the idea of dance because it was so much part of me. And I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll go to New York. I have to learn more about the dance. And uh, I have to do some before I come back and be a painter. I, I think that was a mistake because I missed on the being an automatist oh. painter. Oh, really? Do you mean if you, if you could do it again, if we could get time back, you, you wouldn't have done the yeah. dance excursion? Yeah. But, you know, upstairs, there are those extraordinary photographs of dance in the snow. And I was trying to think, going through my limited repertoire of being aware of what performance is, is happening in the world. In 19, when you do that thing, my guess is nobody else had done anything remotely like it. Did you realize in doing Dance in the Snow how radical it was? It was a performance that was done outside for to, to be recorded in a way. I mean, the art was the, the performance rather than it being done for an audience. It, it, it was, I had mixed feelings. In a way, I, thought, I knew it was something uh, different. Uh, I was dreaming of this, how I, I could manage to do that. And uh, I sort of figured how it would be come, going in the sequence that would be, uh, uh, would make sense. Mm -hmm. And when I went there, I didn't know what movements to do at all. I just went there and let the landscape, oh. uh, that I was very aware of the landscape and of my presence in the landscape. And I would do something and I would tell Jean-Paul to stand in that, in a certain place. And uh, Maurice Perron was standing shoulder to shoulder. So it's exactly what he was saying. Oh. So the point of view was direct yeah. then in that way? Yes, and then I moved to another landscape a little further. And then there was this hill and the snow was very particular. Uh, it had been, it had rained and made the snow spiky and when it froze again. So it was very hard to, to move on that. It was slippery but very spiky at the same time and I was <laughs> leaping down the hill. <laughs> so the landscape spoke to you. That, in a sense that was improvised through your perception of the landscape? Yeah. It's, ex it's, it's extraordinary. I mean they, they're as fresh looking at them today. They're amazing. Did, did, did you know you had something special when you came back out of the cold? I thought, sort of, yes. And you know, uh, Gilles, um, what's his name, Gilles? Um, oh, I always forget. Uh, 
Lapointe uh, wrote on this, and he made a research when he went to uh, the northern countries in Europe. Like the Scandinavian countries? Yes, <laughs> and he asked over there if there had been anything like it, and they didn't know of anything like that. Uh -huh. but now, and then it became part of a larger the seasons that you decided that the, you would respond to the landscape in its, well, its I, seasonal cycle as well? When I, when I did the uh, dance in the snow, I had already made one in the summertime uh, down the St. Lawrence River and uh, with my mother at the camera. Mm -hmm. Again, telling her, uh, seeing the landscape and telling her where to stand to take me and changing again about three times uh, in the landscape. And of course, Riapel shot the dance in the snow, and yeah. then that film was lost. It's like this. Some, well, yeah, I think somewhere in an attic, somewhere, those things are still there no, somewhere. No? Uh, because Rosemary Arbour has finally contacted the person who had the film. Uh, I didn't see the film. We, did, we had the camera, the 16 millimeter camera, but we didn't have a screen to look, uh, to project it. And I met this friend of mine. Uh, who had one, and that was, I think, in 56 or 57. And I remember Pat and I going to visit them, mm. and we saw the, his film that he had made and my films, and he said, well, there's a little bit of, I could do a montage for you, and uh, left it to him. Uh, sometime later, he went with his wife to, uh, on a trip, they quarreled and divorced. And then shortly after, he was without any money and uh, couldn't pay his rent. And his proprietor threw all his belongings out on the street. Including so, the film? Well, that's the story that has been, uh, that has come to us now. Now, there's a lesson in family values there. If we'd stop having divorces, we'd still have that dance film, so yes. that's really important. We'll have to let the Prime Minister know that, that we can reform the country on the basis of that's lost right. films. <laughs> now, to calm down, Enright. Um, so, I'm interested to hear you say in a way you wish you hadn't done it, because I, I do want to get it when you... You meet Patterson Ewan, you get married, you have four sons. Mm -hmm. I, I guess it's a kind of a naive question to, to ask, did I that have... two ha sons here. Do they want to stand up and... I can imagine which ones they are as well. They look like their father. <laughs> but but what, what I'm getting at is that did that, did that, that must have had an effect on, on what it was you could make. I mean, that the, having children and having a family. Did that change things for you fairly radically? Uh, well, it was very almost impossible to continue with the dance. Because dance is so demanding time-wise, isn't it? Yes, and uh, if you're dancing, you have to train every day, every day. You, it's no use uh, doing it otherwise. So, um, uh, yes, I left uh, the dance and uh, took up, I started doing some uh, sculpture. Mm -hmm. um, maybe because Pat was painting, and <clears throat> then I, sculpture was physical, closer to dance, and uh, started welding. 
It is interesting how you never, ever, though, stop making things. That you, you had a compulsion to make something all the time, didn't you? I mean, you kept moving from one, one art form to another in some way. <laughs> it seems so. It's, but being an artist, uh, it's what I felt I was. Mm -hmm. When I saw the dance last night, too, I was struck by how... It, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It seemed like it was playing off of notions of kind of atavism or primitivism, and yet it was seductive and coy at the same time. When you go down to New York early on and work with Boas, were you influenced by the way she was thinking about cross-cultural influences and that kind of thing? Uh, possibly. Also, I, I, uh, well, we always looked at uh, primitive work and... Uh, um, I, I had to take uh, a, a few lessons from from African art, from Af African dance. Mm -hmm. I did take a few classes with Pearl, Pearl Primus. I took a few classes of uh, Indian uh, dance with uh, La Mairie. Uh, I never mastered these, but it, it helped me to uh, develop muscles different way in a different way. Mm -hmm. I suppose in some ways tradition can be overpoweringly uh, a problem, and then it is inspirational, because you talked about Martha Graham and that she was such a personality that you also had to free yourself from the kind of movement you'd learned mm -hmm. in the Martha Graham technique yes. as well. Though she was extraordinary when, when the few classes that I had with her were... What an extraordinary person she was. Magnetic. Mm -hmm. So when do you, do you know, you, you see, you were able to pick exact dates in 1940 when you did things. Do you remember the exact date when you decide that, or you make a painting for the first time, when you feel you have the freedom to, to reclaim that territory of being a painter on, in, in a space on the wall rather than being a painter in movement or language? Well, I, I was painting then at first. I went through art school. Before, yeah, but then you, then you move into dance, as you yes. say. When do well, you come back to painting? Oh, uh, well, I did, uh, I went to do sculpture for two, about a decade. And then I was, I was just ready to come back to painting. I was thinking about it. When um, painting became dead, or so, so they said. Uh, there were some theoreticians who used social history to put down painting. And that was devastating for, not just for me, but for many artists. You know that. Mm -hmm. That's well known now. And uh, didn't know what to do. It didn't make sense. I went to Italy to, to find out what was going on there and saw the Arte Povera group and uh, what they were doing and I was almost paralyzed. And uh, then I thought, well, maybe I can do some things like that and, or reacted. Uh, uh, you know, something that was being said was we don't, we don't want art anymore. We don't need it. 
the museums, we don't need museums anymore. Uh, so even bef uh, right at the beginning, in 1970, I decided, well, okay, I'm going to take a walk from one museum to the other. We have a, a main museum, Musée des Beaux-Arts, and then we have uh, the Musée d'Art Contemporain, which was at the Cité du Havre, quite far uh, by the river. I'm going to take a walk there, taking a photo at every corner without any aesthetic decisions, just directly, and uh, come back doing the same thing. See, uh, we don't want museums. What's in between? What's, <laughs> what is there? It's lovely, too. You walk from the history of art to contemporary art and back to the history of art again. I yes. mean, the trajectory itself is the trajectory of, of what art history is. Mm -hmm. Did you know that what you were doing in that piece, you, you either inadvertently or consciously joined the, the kind of conceptual movement? Yes. And it is a conceptual piece. Mm -hmm. It was. And <laughs> it is funny because I just heard that it's going to be exhibited in the <laughs> history of conceptual art now. Uh, <laughs> very soon. Boy, when they do uh, the history of Canadian art, I mean, out of Quebec, you pretty well fill all the categories, don't you? You're you, a little bit greedy, <laughs> Francoise, you know? Is there anything you didn't do? When, when you start the Homage series, by the way, which is a, their magnificent paintings upstairs, I'm, I'm interested in, was it the thinking about those individuals that then determined the nature of the mark making, the scale of the painting, the palette? No. I was painting. I was painting, doing painting, and trying to do the best painting I, I could think of. Um, but all these artists were passing away. Mm -hmm. uh, they, I mean, I, I kept thinking about them. I kept, they were inside me all the time. And when I, the paintings were exhibited, and I was asked, well, what are the titles? It just came to me. They were named after they were made? Yes, of course. <laughs> well, that was, so, but I was thinking of these people uh. all the time. So, and I the mean, when, when you have friends uh, who are great artists and they're passing away, I mean, you keep mm. thinking of them. And there I was alone in my studio and they were present in me. Mm -hmm. When, you, when you, you didn't know at the time of doing it then, when you did Patterson, but that's a huge painting. I mean, what, what was it that made you decide to do that big a painting? And am I right in thinking that's the largest painting you've ever done? Yes. You know what made me do it? I thought, I'm going to do it while I can still do it. Physically? Yes. Wow. <laughs> that was a challenge. How did you do it? Did you, were you, were you, was it all flat and you painted it no, flat? It, it, I painted it on the wall and uh, with a brush, you know, brush just this big and really ev every mark is made and then made over and over. Mm -hmm. And um, when I couldn't reach, sometimes I asked Francis if he could come and help me or the other artists at is uh, on the other side of the studio, whoever was there. And then we had to, to help me. We had to clear the whole space. You've been in my studio. 
the whole space of everything that was there, bring down the painting, which is very heavy, <clears throat> turn it around, and then lift it up. No kidding. <clears throat> and we had to do that a few times because the paintings were done over and over again. So you would only paint as high as your arm could yes. extend. Then. Yes. It was, so the body was determining the marks you could make. That's right. Oh. So that, was a lo that would have taken a fair amount of time to do. That. I think it did. I think it did. <laughs> I think it did too. <laughs> wow. So, but you don't. You didn't use a palette knife. I mean, this is you're no. using a brush the whole time. Did you, yeah. were you? Were you never attracted to the idea of factoring that would came out of the palette knife as a as a way of making a painting? Um, recently, I've been doing that. <laughs> really? <clears throat> Excuse me. It's it's much faster with a palette knife. Because the implement make pull drags the painting for you, doesn't uh, it? You know what? It's easier too. See, that damn Bourdois, he, was, he wasn't as good a painter as you thought. He was, just had easy tools. <laughs> Is it really easier? Are you? I find it, so uh -huh. I might try to do a few and see what, what comes out. So it never stops, eh? You're, you're just, you just keep at it. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, those paintings upstairs, it, 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 is it, it's an odd question to ask you. When you look at them, what, what do they, how do they speak to you, those paintings? If, I mean, for the viewers, they're very beautiful and, and not melancholic, but there's a really powerful feeling of, of them being objects that occupy a kind of, that are a sensibility. What, what do they look like to you now, having made them and seeing them in this context? They're okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just okay. <laughs> You know, we could, uh, we could take some questions from the audience now, um, I think, and, and I've got others that will come along, but I'd love to hear what other people have to say. And I'm sure Francoise would as well. She's we have a, a microphone. It would be quite nice if people would use that, then everybody can hear the questions. So do we have any questions? Not yet? Oh, this is the first one. Well, I, I'll pick someone in the audience. I mean, I'm cruel enough to sort of... I mean, there's people in the audience who know more about Francois's work than I do, after all. <laughs> uh, Francois, I, uh, I visited uh, an art gallery in uh, Bragg Creek, Alberta. And the, la the lady said to me, she was an artist, she said, you can always tell the difference between a painting made by a guy and a painting made by a woman. I said, oh, that's interesting. And she said, yeah, paintings by men are always angular with straight lines. And paintings by women tend to use organic, fluid lines or shapes. What do you think? Now, I was thinking George O'Keefe, for example. I thought about that quite a bit. Her barns are never straight lined or the shapes are never straight, they're always organic and fluid and flowing. And I never could... I've asked other women, I'd like to know what you think. Agnes Martin yeah. has straight lines and she repeats... I saw an exhibition at the Pace Gallery some years ago. There were several rooms with these paintings, almost wall size, pale pastel colors, two colors, maybe yellow and pale, pale yellow and pale blue, or pale uh, beige and pink, and, uh, and with lines 
or squares, and they repeat and repeat and repeat. And I keep wondering, what is it that makes these so alive, so entrancing, so beautiful? I, it's the mystery, the biggest mystery I have. This is, doesn't answer your, your question, but the fact is that this, my, these magnificent paintings are made with straight lines. But they're also, the other thing about, about Martin is that her, her mark is not made without, oh, they're no. hand-drawn, aren't they? Yes, and there's a, sometimes a pencil we yeah. can see. So they're, they're more intimate in that they're not hard-edged, I no. mean, if, if that notion of structure is, is Not hard-edged, but it's not uh, uh, vague either. It's very mm -hmm. precise. Mm -hmm. Bryce Martin makes this great looping. The great Chinese paintings of Bryce Martin don't they, don't they would they, they be feminine or female then in the, in the context of thinking about how a line can be made? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I I don't think that holds. <laughs> I have a question. Okay, um, I spoke with you yesterday. I'm a gallery guide, so I give tours of the contemporary collection. How would you want me to introduce you to a group of people who would not know you or know your work? So Wednesday evenings, for example, we have a lot of new people come to the gallery. And if I have to bring them up to your room now, and I, okay, this is, you know, what kind of words or language would you want me to I say? No, Could you say something? <laughs> no. But you would, I mean, the whole notion of, of, of spontaneity, it's one thing we didn't sort of touch on in, in, in our question, and maybe this addresses what the young woman's asking. The making of a painting, as you point out when talking about how you have to keep turning it, I mean, it's hard work. What's the relationship between spontaneity and what we consider inspiration, which we tend to think of as a kind of immediate thing, and then the work of making something as well? I mean, is it at one point it just become work, and that the whole notion of of the, the inspiration sort of stops and it becomes a process? I, I don't know how to answer. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's a bit of everything. It's... <laughs> I don't know. Well, we think inspiration is immediate. And, and let's talk about that fabulous Dédal the origins of Daydal, the dance that you did. Like, you said that you were standing in your studio for a long time and nothing was coming. What was the point, the moment, where you suddenly realized you could do something and that ultimately manifested itself in what I think is a, a, one of your strongest pieces of choreography? Well, I, I know, I remember, remember being there, standing with my feet straight under me and waiting for something to happen and nothing was happening, nothing, for a long, long time. And then I thought, just feeling something, and then, oh, oh, let this grow, let it grow. And uh, it's this feeling of the pendulum, how, like, it falls and it gr uh, comes up the next side. And <clears throat> let wherever the body is taken from this, 
Did that beca- that, so that the, literally, I mean, there's a way in which then the body begins to mo- throw itself almost through space because yes. the pendulum gets so, yeah. so weighty. And so, but then, so when you decide on the intervals, like last night you'd see the movement that, that uh, Jeanette, she would dance and, and then would move backwards in a kind of stutter and then it would start again. I mean, did the shape of the dance come to you in the same way that by doing it? it be- by doing it and then there was a moment when it stopped and then she has to start again. Mm-hmm. And then it sort of developed into the, the circle and the turns. And, and in your dances, you used a lot, lot of music. I mean, you used everything from Duke Ellington to more classical music. And then you decide in, in Dedal that the, the sound will just be the breathing of the dancer. Yes, well, I didn't have any accompaniment to... Well, when I did... Uh, uh, black and tan, I decided to do something with jazz mm-hmm. and uh, that music uh, was seducing me very much so I thought I'll do something with that <clears throat> and then um, then I did uh, uh, the other one um, La Femme Archaïque was inspired by uh, the Mousseau drawing on that board mm-hmm. and uh, uh, asked him to to do uh, a co- uh, drawings on on the uh, costume, and for Dedal, he decided to to make that on me. To paint the, the he the costume. He came and he wove those things. Oh. And he did it on me. It's a good. I love that costume. It's great. It still looks pretty good, doesn't it? I think so. It, actually. The costume is in the National Gallery, and uh, Jeanette and I decided that we needed it. We had no access to it, so we copied it. <laughs> now the National Gallery needs that one too, by the way. You <laughs> <laughs> have to let them know that there's another version of it. <laughs> Hi. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask you about the quality of the paint when you're painting. Um, you referred a minute ago to uh, your interest now in um, bringing the palette knife possibly into the mix, but when I look at the paintings, and I haven't seen the most recent show, but the ones upstairs and others that I've seen, there's uh, always a quality of translucency. The white of the ground is present, even in the darkest paintings. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about light and, and translucency and how it informs the work or how you think about it? Um, oh, gee, those are hard questions. I just paint until, uh, until the, the paint that does what I, I feel it should do. Uh, I paint over and over and over. Uh, it's um, just intuitively that I do it. It is interesting that you didn't, from the, that, that's a, a, a very technical question about, about the way paint goes on, but the nature, and this comes up again in the idea of, of how far you can reach, 
you're actually not a gestural painter. I mean, much of what came out of abstract expressionism and certainly what came out of some aspects of surrealism, which was an influence on the automatists mm -hmm. early on, was a more gestural kind of painting. Yours is a more circumscribed and controlled uh, way of making art. I know. I've tried to do gestural paintings, but they don't, they don't satisfy me when I do it. Mm -hmm. So, I, I, there has, I mean, this is the way it comes out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the, and the, that, the, the way it comes out, that's your sensibility speaking to you. It's not the imposition of a way of painting and no. making a painting that way. It's, it's what feels, it, yeah. it is about intuition. Yeah. What about dream? You talked about some of your choreographic ideas coming out of dream. Does dream play into the notion of inspiration? I don't think especially, uh, no. Not anymore, anyway. It's about consciousness. It's being conscious rather yeah. than, than yeah. yeah. And being aware. Yeah. Hello. Um, I wanted to ask you a couple questions about a couple photographs of yours that I saw that, um, unfortunately, for some reason, I didn't wasn't given an explanation. There was one of you from a really long time ago in Greece, and you are moving. Uh, there's a few photographs of you moving around some ruins. I wonder if you could explain that. And then there was another one of um, some uh, look like a window made at, uh, on a beach out of um, stones, and they seem to be piling up, um, uh, blocking your face or blocking your figure as they were done. And um, I was really upset because no one ever explained them to me, and you're probably the best person to ask about those works. <laughs> but what is the question? What, like the, work, the works, I think some of the works we were doing in yeah. Italy, like what, what, like what explain what they are and what, and what they stood for in a sense. Well, that was the conceptual period and I was quite um, interested in, in the beauty of the abandoned doorways and uh, uh, abandoned uh, windows and some of them were blocked by by stones, sometimes they were blocked by plants, sometimes they were blocked by boards. And I thought that was quite fascinating because of the beauty they represented. And uh, I started taking photographs of these and uh, just work developed through that of uh, blocking and unblocking windows that could have uh, significations, I suppose, um, yeah. but I leave it at that. And then the ones where uh, walking around, that's, those are uh, things that uh, come very spontaneously in different sites. Uh, they sort of happen because of the place where it is. I was interested in, in the countryside, you see a lot of these uh, stone circles where you see, uh, well, they used to beat the, the grain to make the bread. And uh, I would photograph those. And uh, It's just that uh, it was a, a coming into a world 
that is ancient because we don't see these things here in, in, in this part of the world and they fascinated me. I, I, when I went to Europe, I always wanted to go to countries where there would be more ancient uh, objects. And going from France to Italy was great, and then going from Greece from Italy was even more interesting, and so forth. a little bit about your relationship as a choreographer with your dancers and how you try and get them to express your vision and maybe even the dynamic of the relationship that you have with them. Uh, the, the relationship is very warm, very friendly. Uh, we, we love each other. And um, uh, in the case of Jeanette, it, it, it started with when Miriam Adams asked me, she asked Jeanne also, uh, to come to Toronto and to try and recapture some of, of our old, photo our old uh, choreographies. And uh, we were here for two weeks, and we were supposed to bring a dancer, and Jeanette happened to be the one that uh, could come. And uh, so she learned some of these dances and uh, had occasion to perform them. And uh, one day she decided uh, to do a whole evening of my dances. She asked for a grant and got the grant, and so I had to work with her, which was uh, very interesting. And uh, she's been presenting these dances very often. And oh, when I ever this happened, I would do a new choreography, because why not when the dancer is there? And we've been working very hard uh, this year together. In fact, we worked before uh, she performed for the, at the Farley uh, Gallery, and that turned out to be very beautiful because she was doing in front of the paintings in the, in the gallery uh, with the Musso costume in front of the real pal. It just fitted, it just stuck perfectly, and then she did one, the Femme um, Archaïque, uh, in front of the uh, Jean McEwen, which was white, and then the Dédale in front of the Botva, and that was superb. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this time, for this performance yesterday, we've been working since New Year's uh, about three or four mornings a week from 10 to 2.30. Oh. And uh, we've been working very, very much. And she was saying to me, she was saying, I am your canvas. Mm. And uh, I thought that was amazing. In one piece, she actually is wearing your canvas, isn't she? <laughs> she is, yes. <laughs> 
that's an interesting piece because, and the, the question that the woman asks is interesting. I, it would strike me that it would be difficult to do, to not only to recite the, 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 basically the kind of prose poem mm -hmm. you've written, but to keep moving like that. You, it, but you said you can turn like that, so mm -hmm. you don't ask your dancers to do things you can't do. Is, yes. that, is, that, is that the rule? Well, I, I can't do all that they do now, but uh, I, was, I was able to, to turn like that, yes. Maybe I could again, but... Do you want to, you want to try? Or do no. We can end the evening with a, with, a, with a dervish of a twirl. Francoise, I'm always uh, so struck by how you seem to get so much aesthetic force out of what seems to be so little. Uh, it's a restrained vocabulary, a limited vocabulary that you seem to prefer. Uh, a single mark that repeats so often in a picture maybe a, a, a limited palette, monochrome even. And I'm wondering, uh, what draws you to this limited vocabulary that you seem to prefer? And what advantages do you see in working with it? Uh, if you see the work tomorrow at the uh, Wark Gallery, uh, they, they're not monochrome. So I've, I've tried something else. Um, well, the monochrome is very interesting. There's a good history of the monochrome. My work has moved a bit off from the monochrome, uh, but it's, it's close to it. And to think that you can, it has been done now for a, a number of years, but I can still do something with one color or almost, and make it a painting that is alive, alive. Uh, it's a challenge. And uh, it, the challenge is good. The, the monochrome starts as a way of making a painting that has strong connections with spirituality and people like Kandinsky and all that. Is, is, is the monochrome for you, though, closer to something that is about the material of paint, that it doesn't aspire towards a philosophy or a, a larger way of thinking about what a painting is? Well, a painting always refers to a, a philosophy. You have to have a philosophy to do uh, modern painting or modernist painting or, uh, because you have to know what's going on in the world. You have to be akin to, to what is the rhythm of the world at the moment. You have to be uh, aware of the history of painting. You just don't paint without knowing what painting is about. Um, dumb as a painter, it doesn't really exist, does it? There are no exist, dumb painters. No. And uh, this summer, I had the pleasure of going to uh, uh, see uh, Cézanne's uh, Mont Saint Victoire and mm. uh, his home and his studio, and it was a most moving moment. It, it, it just uh, something absolutely fabulous. The uh, vibrations that that came out from this uh, was very moving experience. And um, no, it, uh, you, you have to be fully aware 
and uh, sensitive to to what is in in the arts and all the arts can inspire you can be inspired by by music or by poetry or or by life what something that's happening you you can be inspired by something you know something that oh i was inspired by a, a dress by Yves Saint Laurent recently yes there was a big exhibition at the muse museum in the in the fall and uh, not this fall last year and uh, there was well there was this evening dress in fine silk that came straight down it was orange or vermilion and there was a a coat that came right on it and i said that's a painting i'm i'm going to do a painting of this and i did is it what is it called eve no i don't know what to call when it when you see you got to you got to figure out what to get. <laughs> can you know you the things in the world can be inspiring can you also be inspiring you you've taught for a lot of years i don't know if you've if you've retired from teaching at concordia but how does teaching affect the way that you approach the whole notion of what can be inspiring? Well, it it teaches me what I don't what I what don't want to do. Like um, uh, students uh, will do a lot of dripping because it, they can get um, it. It has become uh, academic to do dripping because. They know they can do dripping, and they'll get a painting. And now I can't stand dripping. <laughs> and then this, I was teaching uh, until December, and uh, my, some of my students would put a lot of paint and then put water on it, lots of water, and then they'd have to let it dry for two days, and they'd get a painting. I thought, well, that's... You know, it, it becomes academic. The reappel just turned around upstairs in the galleries, by the way. It's just, it's just, it's, the ghost of reappel is going to haunt you tonight, you know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. In those days, it was a discovery. Yes. Mm -hmm. But now it's not anymore. So that's what academic art is. When you've shifted to a different, obviously what you're implying is not a monochromatic palette, was that a conscious move to expand the, the palette? Or just something that, that again feels right? Or is it actually more motivated by cognition than feeling? Well, it, I think it's both. Mm -hmm. Both, you, you have to, to be aware of what you're doing and what, uh, and that when you do it, that you're searching for something. Mm -hmm. I keep trying to want to trap you inside a Cartesian trap about the difference between thought and feeling, and you keep saying keep that's not the well, because you, you don't you don't buy into that notion. The the, the living human being is thinking both. and feeling all the time all simultaneously. The, all the time, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's probably right. And something that certainly is inspiring is are the works of other painters, not to copy, but to be inspired by the. Uh, the mystery that comes from their paintings, the mm -hmm. human feelings that, that are captured there. Those can be great moments that have 
created those works and you have to find ways and you don't know how you don't know how when you have to to try things what was the connection between Breton, by the way, and the Surrealists and, and, and Bordeaux? I've, I've never got that straight. Were there, was there correspondence between Breton and, and Bordeaux? There was. I'm not sure about uh, Bordeaux, but Fernand Le Duc corresponded with uh, Breton. And uh, uh, then Breton invited the group to be part of the, uh, the Surrealists. Really? Group, and uh, we discussed that, and then Fernand Le Duc uh, wrote back to him that we were not going to be part of this group; that we were our own uh, group. That's great. I'm sure that really pissed Breton off. Oh yes, it did. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Um, I'm thinking of a moment when, when you were very inspired uh, back, uh, um, I believe it was in 1945, and when um, perhaps out of enthusiasm or frustration you made the decision to mount an exhibition of the uh, automatist work that was available in New York um, when they were not receiving any um, attention. And I'm just wondering, uh, Francoise, if you might be able to talk about that little experience in your life which I think was pivotal and what kind of attention you may have received. Um, for example, were there uh, other American artists that, that noticed that event or um, what are your feelings about that at this time? I was so uh, convinced that the works that the automatists were doing was great that I thought we have to bring that to New York, we have to show it here, and they, will, they were all uh, say, oh yes, let's big, put, make a big uh, exhibition of the automatis. And since Louise uh, Renault had uh, worked for uh, Pierre Matisse, the uh, son of uh, Henri oh, Matisse, yeah. who had a gallery, he had, she had worked for a year as a a nanny for his children, and uh, she was, uh, was able to meet all the, uh, the surrealists, and uh, Duchamp, and Mata, and uh, uh, Pierre La no, all the, um, all the people who were in New York. Who left because the of the time. war as well, yes. yeah. And uh, I thought, I'm going to go and see uh, Pierre Matisse. So I go to the gallery with, I had brought some small works that I could uh, carry. And I went to the gallery and showed him, and he looked, and he looked bored. And uh, that was it. So nothing happened. So uh, then uh, my teacher said, okay, it's okay, you can show them here. She, a lot of people came to her. She had a, a new the intellectuals and the art artists around. And indeed, Morton Feldman would, mm -hmm. would come to the studio. Uh, who was that anthropologist that came? Uh, oh, I forget now. Uh, 
Anyway, so I made the exhibition in the studio, but nothing came out of it, unfortunately. But there was an exhibition in New York. Mm. Uh, two years later, Pierre Matisse was carrying Riopel. He had seen them. Oh, you took Riopel along in the portfolio along yes. with him? Oh. But he didn't decide that himself. It was Pierre Loeb who told him that was important. One of the intriguing things is that this show that, that's been curated at Tomatisse is, is now going to the Albright Knox, which is a pretty special gallery. Yes. What are your expectations? I mean, it's, are you going to go back and, and is it finally going to get recognized in the United States? I don't know. <laughs> there, there's a chauvinist quality that keeps us wondering. Uh, will they be pleased to hear that Marcel Barbeau did his all over before Pollock? It, that, that's a rhetorical question. I, 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 can, I can tell you what they'll, how the reaction will be to that. But he didn't do the big ones, that's what they say. Scale, yeah. Is, is, is it actually on record that, Barbe, that Marcel was, had done a, a, yes. a drip painting before yes. all its first? Uh, not drip, but uh, drawing all Action over. Action painting, yeah. Yeah, all over. Well, that'll be interesting. Well, Ray, you, you work on that. Okay. Um, there's a, at one exhibition in Paris, there was art, one of the famous art critics, Michel Ragon, who said that the automatist anticipated, even for a short time maybe, but the um, American and the French uh, art of that time. Oh. So. Art history is always the, the history told by the, by the victors to those who aren't, so it'll be yes. interesting to see what, what's going to happen. But on this one. Th things were difficult here in, in Canada. We never got support at that time. While in New York, they had at least five major critics talking about them. They had galleries that would uh, sell their works, and uh, Betty Parsons, who had friends who were wealthy, she'd call on them and say, this is important, buy this, and they would, even if they didn't know what it was at the time. Hi. Um, I work in dance preservation, and I guess as a young student, um, it's been absolutely thrilling to have the opportunity to learn works of past choreographers. And I guess talking to dancers um, and choreographers, people in the dance community seem to be hesitant about you know, placing a lot of resources in preserving dance. And I guess I just wondered what your thoughts are on dance preservation. And if we were to go ahead and try and preserve some of your works, what aspects of the works would you try to preserve? I didn't know. The, the, it, it, now, one of the things that's happening now in, in, in dance conservation is the preservation of, 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 of dance. And what would you like to see if, if, if this young woman were involved in preserving some of your dances? What would be involved in that notation? Or there are some of your dance notations are, in fact, in the show, right? Yes. What, how else would, would one record and retain dance from a conservation point of view so that it can be re, restaged, basically? A dance is very hard to notate. I, I have done some, but 
even when you read it, it's still difficult. The video is really the, the magical way. Mm. We recapture something from, from the video that's, and we didn't have that in, in former times. Because mm -hmm. when you talk about seeing the, the remounts of the Diaghilev, where th those are based on still photographs, there's, I think there's very little. There's about 18 or 20 seconds of Nijinsky dancing, I think, I and that's basically all I there know. is. Yes, but the dancers have been done by b other ballet companies, mm -hmm. and I'm pretty sure that uh, Les Sylphides or uh, the Spectre of the Rose or, uh, are still pretty close to what it was. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can speak to um, the legacy of, the, um, of that group and what, whether pa painters in Quebec are still painting that way or whether things have moved on. Uh, I think that painting has, has moved on, but the legacy it, uh, it leaves is the passion with which it was done and uh, of course you can't stop and just do what was done then you, it just moves on but the knowledge that uh, this happened that the automatic group and all the activities around it are very important does that answer your question Painting, who's painting in Quebec now? Um, there is, there is a, a school of, of thought that examines paint, paintings of the recent past and uh, examines it, uh, it in the painting. Uh, to me, it feels too reasonable too logical, mm. and uh, I, I prefer uh, something that doesn't do that. But uh, there are important painters who are doing this kind of work. Any last questions? This is your last chance. How do you see the future of the painting? You know, in the future, because now we can see so many different media and um, artists using. So, there is more interest in painting just recently, and maybe all this activity with the automatist revolution. I think uh, people, they say, tout le monde en parle. Everybody talks about it, and I think uh, it's going to have echoes in what way. It, you cannot predict in what way, but I think there will be more interest in painting. There already is. 
think that's probably a very good point to, to draw to a close. I, I want to thank both of you very much. I really like the intimacy of this format. I don't know what you all think, but I really like that you don't quite know where it's going as well. We have... Neither do we, by the way. <laughs> no, I could tell that, but you're really good. You're really good. Um, we have recorded this, so we will actually put it on the website, and you'll be able to... I'll need to listen to it again. I know that for sure. So I think you're excellent at the, the whole thing. It's so relaxed and, and marvellous. And thank you so much, Francoise, for your generosity. Uh, one thing that really struck me last night watching those dances, I mean, they felt very, very fresh and relevant, and they felt very contemporary. So, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, marvellous. It's been a great delight to have you here for the week. So thank you very much indeed. <laughs>